You know, once you stop thinking of your politics as being about determining who's guilty and who's innocent and being instead about organizing people to cooperate together to change transforming society freedom then you you're really free of sitting around trying to figure out who's in jail for good reasons and who's in jail for bad reasons but you know the left is like this the left is like the the corner gossip who's determining you know whether the floozy down the street is like a yeah but how how did this happen i mean this is because left is not political why do you think i say it's dead Back in the day, I used to announce the date at the beginning of every podcast, and I feel like I should do that. May 17th, 2023, um, Chris Catrone is uh, everyone's favorite Marxist track coat, the last Marxist uh, contrarian. I, I, that is, a, by the way, that is a label that I that stings now. I never, I used to be, be called that and, and think, fine, good, I'm a contrarian, and now people are calling me that, and I'm like, oh, I see what they're doing. It's a um, yeah, it's 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 an insult, and I so you're not actually contrarian, okay. um, uh, but you are the last ma- Marxist. You are my track coach, um, and your your book, uh, "The Death of the Millennial Left," is coming out soon, ne- probably next month, uh, middle of the month, I'm guessing. From minutes of the printers, yes, print, being printed now, and, and they do that in slow motion, so it will take a little bit of time, but it's coming soon, um, and. I'm glad to have you on today. I've been experiencing, uh, uh, you know, what I thought I couldn't ex- experience anymore. I, I, disillusionment. I, I thought uh-huh. I was far you past. You thought you had all illusions stripped from you, but it turns out there are yet more. That's right. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So now I'll just have to accept that every few days another illusion will be stripped away. Um, but uh, so what I wanted to ask you about, like I've been going through your book again, trying to glean some insight from it to help me as I, uh, have all my illusions tossed aside. And, uh, the, the question I guess I have for you that popped out of me first when I was reading through your book is, um, why do you think that the crisis of neoliberalism is a crisis for democracy as well? Um, because I think it raises all the questions of democracy. Um, and I think, you know, this has been a longstanding thing. I think it's most exemplified by the 2016 election, um, both primaries and Trump's election ultimately in 2016, but the Bernie primary challenge against Hillary and the WikiLeaks, right, that showed the skullduggery of Clinton campaign in the Democratic National Committee against Bernie, um, Bobby Mook, who also organized, um, he hired people to start fights at Trump rallies. He also did that. Um, And so I think that really, you know, when we're talking about democracy in, in the capitalist world, in capitalist countries, and in the United States above all, we're talking about political parties. We're talking about how political competition is managed by the parties. And so how the parties function clearly has a huge impact on the democracy because we don't, we only vote for the candidates that the parties forward. And so how the parties handle their own affairs is of great public interest. And 
both the Bernie campaign and the Trump campaign showed something about these parties and the disrepair of the parties. So the kind of um, threadbare character of the parties. So it's no longer the 1960s, like machine politics, like well-organized parties, well-oiled machines. They clearly are not that. And, you know, they're clearly, you know, it's like the Citizens United decision came down in this era. I feel like in the, in the millennial era, in the era of the millennial left, a lot of things have happened that have kind of exposed the nature of politics over the last 50 years, really. Like what the essence of politics has become um, in, in capitalism. And yet, nothing demonstrated it more than the 2016 election. When you talk about machine politics, that doesn't sound extremely democratic, uh, democratic nor particularly like um, uh, enviable or something that you would want to, to return to. This is something politics. that I wrote about um, because, you know, what, what we have in my book is really the whole period from 2006 to 2022. Mm -hmm. And so looking back at the competition between Hillary and Obama for the Democratic nomination in 2008, mm -hmm. right, um, the kind of hollowness of posing Obama as a movement candidate and uh, Hillary as a machine candidate, right? And I, I wrote about this, um, about how at least Hillary had to make appeals to specific constituencies, you know, to organize labor, you know, get union endorsements, whereas Obama could trade on a more big kind of appeal mm -hmm. in the primaries. Um, and really, you know, he, you know, he did try to compete with Hillary for organized labor as a constituent, for example, by championing the employee free choice which was supposedly going to bring about a huge renaissance in labor union organizing in the United States. And as soon as he was elected, it dropped. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, you know, it was one of these, you know, like demagogic, broken promise, whatever you want to call it. But I said, you know, what I wrote about at the time, right, I wrote about, well, you know, this really raises the question of like what these elections and primary challenges and choice of nominee within these political parties is really about. And if you recall from 2016, one of the things that was used to disqualify both Bernie and Trump was that they won primaries on the basis of independent rather than registered Democrats or Republicans. So the, the Hillary won the registered Democrats, Bernie won some of those, but also a lot of independents. And Trump also won the primaries on the basis of independence. And that meant that this wasn't really the choice of the party. Right. So it's, it's really a question like whether these machine politics parties of old were more democratic because they were more thoroughly organized as regards constituencies. And they had an internal po political life that was more vibrant. In other words, now it's all about like, fundraising for advertising right like who mm -hmm. can beat you over the head more with tv commercials and they're expensive and so you know in the citizens united decision as it turns out right um obama mastered the art of small scale 
like crowdfunding donations, which also benefited Bernie. Bernie was mm-hmm. also a minister of that. And also Trump didn't do poorly with that either. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the effects of the Citizens United decision is to open up right, um, campaign contribution, fundraising donations. And it turns out, so the Democrats were like, oh, this is the end of the world for us, the Citizens United decision. Um, but it turns out they've done very well with it. And that, again, you know, but then it, it, it so what, what do we make of that? Do we make of that that small scale donation is an indicator of greater dem- democratic participation? I would. Well, I mean, that, right. But, you know, it's anything. just to kind of reiterate what you're, you're saying here, like it, it, the the machine approach to politics is, is an approach where what you're doing is you're uh, doing politics to gain support of constituents which are themselves directed directed and organized through civic civil society organizations like unions or churches or or community organizations the variety of maybe the you know uh all sorts of clubs around business and um NGOs. ngos yeah so like um you are you're being directed by someone in authority within an institution, civil society institution that you're a part of, on how you should vote. Those institutions can't really guarantee votes, but they can have a huge impact. Very, They can sway a lot of votes. This is and the big scandal of the Trump candidacy and election is that unions officially endorsed Hillary but and then and Biden, but then the membership sometimes voted for Trump instead. Then the other, on the other side, the other approach... And I, I hear about this sometimes. I've been hearing about this uh, for, for, you know, in a variety of ways my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching a documentary about um, Edward Bernays mm-hmm. and uh, the way in which political candidates were turned into commodities. Yes. In the middle of the 20th century and like the Ike campaign being one of the first, the oh, yeah. Eisenhower campaign right. being the yep. first one to create advertising for their candidate. In the same way you would make advertising for Campbell's Soup. Eisenhower exemplified that because it was like the Republicans, how could they take advantage of an unpopular president, namely Truman? Mm -hmm. And why was Truman unpopular? The Korean War. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do you take advantage of that? Well, they they looked around and they were like, none of our politicians are going to fit the bill. So it's got to be, I like Ike. It's got to be basically a Democrat, Eisenhower, mm-hmm. you know, a non-political person, a general, a war hero, right? And that it's a perfect example of that, right? In terms of, you know, we just need, you know, a front man for our policies. The policies are going to be whatever they are, the same, but, right? And because they were kind of on the ropes, you know? Um, and that's the only way they could win is through like, you know, a charismatic appeal or something, but not even, not even, you know, it's like mm-hmm. a funny, yeah, it's what you're saying. It's like, uh, and, and, you know, our whole lifetime, mm-hmm. when you think about it, that's all that anyone ever talked about with these candidates. And if you remember, who's the dude who was brought in for 
Clinton's re-election in 1996, and it was a scandal because he's like a kind of a pollster. I know his name, but I'm forgetting it now. And it was like, oh, well, you know, are we going to govern by polls? You know, it was like a scandal. And that's in the 90s. And it's like, you know, that's been happening for some time. You know, that's not new. That's not brand new. But the idea was that actually Clinton was cutting himself loose from the Democratic Party's organized base Mm -hmm. by running for re-election and governing on the basis of Poland. That that was a a kind of a a signal of something undemocratic going on, actually. And now I feel like now elections just are polls. Mm-hmm. Or equivalent to opinion polling. But not that long ago, it was considered a scandal to treat elections as mm-hmm. opinion polls. Right. And so just to, to kind of underline the point, when you're directly appealing to the mass of society, the unorganized mass, you are not direct you're not appealing to people as political actors, but as consumers, as people who are alienated, isolated, atomized. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not and and only participating in politics through m- maybe flip you know uh, voting or uh, talking to a pollster or you know and that's it. They, in other words, they're 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 spectators. The other curious phenomenon now is that, especially in the era of Trump, which we're still in, mm-hmm. is voter enthusiasm. Right. So right. turnout used to be a kind of machine organized. Now it's like enthusiasm. And it's a race to the bottom. In other words, the parties compete not over enthusiasm of their base for the candidate, but demoralizing the voters for the other guy, like discouraging them from even showing up to vote, making them like disgusted with everything so that they don't even bother voting. So it's a kind right. of race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. So which which side can make the other side more unappealing to their own base? Right. Right. And it's so crazy now. Right. And and also there's an idea that even if your own candidate makes people disgusted with politics, that as long as it depresses the vote for the other person more than for your candidate, it's good. So it's like a race to the bottom. It, you know, which is a term that otherwise is used in the neoliberal era for other things, you know, like driving down wages. And um, but now we have race to the bottom in the realm of politics. You know, Would it be and- fair to say that the, the death of the machine politics approach um, to presidential politics and to federal politics in general um, occurred? Uh, I mean, it, it didn't really just start with the turn to neoliberalism, but that it was maybe solidified or pervasive it sort of of came out into the open or something Mm -hmm. you know um but you know electability all right it's like wait what you know like sure electability probably has always been a factor but to have that be basically the primary factor is a little nuts you know rather than representation like, who does this person represent? How did they become the candidate? How did they work their way up to represent more and more people through successive elected office, right? 
and of course now, you know, we had like a billionaire parachute and, and become president, which was threatened for a long time, Ross Perot, right. And whoever, like there have been various like Bloomberg and Steve Forbes. I mean, there have been various threats in this direction, but then Trump just did it. And what's interesting is that he didn't buy the presidency. He spent very little of his own money. He was very stingy about spending his own money, actually. Um, notoriously, the Republicans were frustrated. They were like, why, why isn't Trump spending more of his own money? Why is he making me, making us raise all the money? And it's like, he's, you know, of course, he's a businessman. He's not going to spend anything he doesn't have to. <laughs> but, you know, but maybe the big picture in terms of machine politics, because I would turn it back to the question of party politics. And the left has this funny problem that goes back to the 60s which is that they were turned off to politics in the form of parties. So in the United States, it's obviously a rebellion against the New Deal Democratic Party because it just looked like this thing, this kind of obstacle to social change, especially the civil rights movement, right? Because of the Dixiecrats, blah, right? And then LBJ and, you know, like military industrial complex and blah, blah, blah. And all this stuff, and you know, he's a southerner, does he represent the Dixiecrats, does he not? All this stuff, contemporaneous with, in Europe, but also in the United States. Disenchantment with the old communist parties. Disenchantment with the Stalinist parties. Mm -hmm. And we have a kind of unconscious inheritance of this attitude. You know, and so... My concern, because I'm not really concerned capitalist electoral politics, I'm not. I think it's an opportunity to see how things work. It's also an opportunity to see how fragile the capitalist political realm is in certain respects and how immune it is in other respects. So before we started recording, we were talking about the bureaucracy and the fourth branch of government, right, and how the bureaucracy was set up to be immune to popular accountability, both by Congress, um, well, really by Congress, really. It's, it's a legacy of the New Deal, and the quasi-legislation that the bureaucracy engages in as delegated from the Congress. And I guess people are paranoid now. They're upset that the Supreme Court might destroy the so-called Chevron rule that allows the bureaucracy to legislate autonomously, basically. That if the, if, if the Supreme Court, through their crazy, strict constructionist, constitutional conservatism, might actually do away with this very key thing that makes like capitalist policy work outside of capitalist politics. Right? And so, it's just an interesting time to live in because these things are really being highlighted and you know shown to be up for grabs. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, so for a long time in our lifetime, the left would complain about the so-called DNC. Right? So it was like the grassroots Democratic Party versus the Democratic National Committee. And the Democratic National Committee was this kind of dark force, unaccountable, up there, pulling mm-hmm. strings. Right. And I, I always thought, well, that's a little bit much. But that anti-party attitude 
So it turns out that the left, of course, has no problem with the Democratic Party, with all that stuff. It doesn't matter what they do. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the, one of the crooks who was exposed by the WikiLeaks, is now the left's champion attacking Matt Taibbi at a congressional hearing. And I'm like, you know, because I saw Debbie Wasserman Schultz like attacking Matt Taibbi, and I'm like, I hope people remember who she is. Right? She they, is, they did. I mean, what villain? Right? Exposed. Like, she was one of the anti-Bernie villains exposed by WikiLeaks. Right, I know. You know, when don't forget that, like, that's why she's attacking Matt Taibbi, because she sees Matt Taibbi as Julian Assange. Yeah, I mean, like when Doug Henwood, for instance, or Sam Cedar or any of these people who I consider to be pretty aligned with the Democratic Party fundamentally would were championing Debbie Wasserman Schultz. They would say it hurts me. Oh, you have to say that Debbie Wasserman. Oh, it hurts them, but they still Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like motherfucker. Yeah, well, the, but my problem wasn't that it wasn't that it was what she said, the attack that she made. And the attack was, didn't you say once you shouldn't just be spoon fed information by a source? And his response was, well, yes, it, that's always a, a problem when you're when you have a source, you know, it's always going to be motivated. And so you have to make validate judgments. and you take you make judgments and you have to do what's in the public interest, but the story importance. The other thing about that was the accusation really was that the information was cherry picked, which means that whatever it said was a distortion, that it didn't reflect reality, that there was no real story there, but that it was probably, by the way, that's why they had to say that Julian Assange was only transmitting things provided by Russia. Even if, even if that's not true, right? He always denied that. Yeah. That the that the server break in of the DNC was done by the Russians. He always denied that that was the case. I don't know. I I think there's some evidence of that that it was. There really that, isn't much any. Like in other words, I have no way of knowing. But actually, I doubt. It. Like in other words, I think it's probably a internal source to the Democrats. Right. I don't know, but I know that CrowdStrike said it was the Russians and. On the basis of something very minimal, though. Right. Yeah, not on, not, they didn't have any direct evidence, but they had, it had all the hope. Look about another Orwellian name. I know. Crowd strike, right? It's like striking the crowd. (laughs) Right. You know, like, um, no, I mean, seriously. And, you know, so to my mind, but again, this whole like Russia thing and, you know, which is nuts and which is, I mean, we, we mentioned that when we first got on together, the Durham report. Mm-hmm. You know, can people just admit it? The whole thing was a fucking hoax, that there's nothing to it. It is what Trump says it is. It's a Russia collusion hoax. It's a total fabrication, no basis whatsoever. Well, so we th- and, th- and, here, and here's the talking points from the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party's radical left-wing representatives, okay? Here's what you're going to so-called radical or progressive left representative. They're going to say, in fact, the Durham report says that the FBI was correct to investigate the original tip. Okay. And so they, they in fact, the Durham report uh, support, su- supports the investigation. All right. Right. This is double speak. This is the art of double speak perfected. Yeah, I know. But the, what, what the report says is they had an initial tip. They should have looked into it 
far enough to recognize that there was no basis behind it and not created a full-blown investigation based on that initial original test. It was coordinated with the people in the FBI. They, it's not like anyone made a decision. The decision was already made that this tip is going to be provided in order for us to have right, but, follow it up. But right, from a, you know, a three, book three done. But it wasn't you, like, you, oh, a tip just comes in and we investigate it. They, they, were, they knew ahead of time, oh, a tip is going to come in. Yeah, but demonstrating that that, that, that collusion at, was, you know, happened, I'm not sure if the Durham report gets that far. But I know that if you just call it like it balls or strikes, you just say, what are the rules? How do you handle a tip? What are the steps to verify? Well, you know how you tip? handle a tip, which is that like anybody can call up the FBI and say my Muslim neighbor is a terrorist and they'll follow up on it. Right. Right. But then they'll find so out that the, the rules are like incredibly lax. Right. In other words, right, I know. But, but, look, yeah, but yeah, but the point is that the FBI, when they follow up on a reported crime or reported incident, should try to validate the source and determine whether it has substance. And according to the Durham report, no such effort was really made to validate the tip. But, right, it was I only think we should assume. I think we should assume that the police state is in the business of making up crimes. In other words, we should Oh, assume, we know that. I mean, that's right. I mean, we know right? that. So we should just assume that. And then the question is, what recourse do you have against it? Right. And the recourse that you have against it is in court, basically. And right. that's where, you know, like Flynn and Manafort, you know, whatever they might have done, they were probably unjustly prosecuted. I mean, so then it becomes a matter of showing, oh, look, it's rigged in court tip. Right. But, but my original point was just to bring up the fact that what the radical left to is prevent the police from making up shit. They're going to. Be oh, I know. But, right. But the radical left is saying that the Durham report, the so-called radical left, not the radical left, the uh, the progressive left. Like, and you know, why saying, don't make up crimes because it's a lot easier than investigating real crimes. Oh, well, it's yeah, that's a lot easier. Can, let, let's, right. let's get to that. Let's get to that. Yeah, I just want okay. to reiterate this other point. Uh -huh. The, my, my point is just that there, you're being told that the report, people are saying the report uh, shows that there was justification for the Russian, Russiagate conspiracy investigation. And what it actually demonstrates is that based on that there was a mishandling of the initial report and that that initial report should have been looked into in order to discredit it and not to waste time and disparage the sitting president of the United States uh, with a, a, Which a, is, a of hoax. Of a, that's not even really the thing either. In other words, like, um, you know, maybe the deep state, you know, should be investigating elected officials all the time. They do have a certain amount of immunity. In other words, there's parliamentary immunity on the part of the Congress, you know, the Senate and the representatives. And, and there's a certain amount of immunity attaches to the presidency as well as well they shouldn't be investigating the president of the united states or anyone if the initial tip is 
bogus. If doesn't, it can't be shown to have substance if they don't go through the steps of trying to validate, if they don't investigate it in fact, which is what they didn't do. They didn't look into, uh, they didn't contact Russia experts uh, or anyone who had knowledge about Trump's past. They didn't follow up on whether or not there was anything of substance to the initial tip. They should have investigated that, and they didn't. So, But all I'm pointing out is this Orwellian doublespeak. Between yes. Them. No, that's the right. thing. That's what they've mastered. They've mastered the ability to justify things and also to escape accountability. In other words, it's, it's kind of like everything. You know, so like the Hunter Biden laptop story and right. Biden, the Biden family corruption and, you know, Biden Incorporated or the Biden crime family, whatever the Republicans are calling them. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, let's just assume, so we're socialists here. Mm-hmm. Let's assume all capitalist politicians are corrupt, that they're all lining their pockets all the time. Yeah. Let's just assume. Granted. Well, I think there's evidence for that. I definitely yeah, know. Yeah, there's a in other words, that's not like a conspiracy theory. It's just like, let's just assume everyone's doing insider trading at the very least based on legislation is going to affect the but stock market. But they're basically taking bribes, more or less, you know. Um, they're having their attention directed through not just through cam- campaign contributions, but also through, like, indirect personal mm-hmm. enrichment. But let's just assume that that's the case. Okay. So. Let's also assume the case that it would be disastrously dysfunctional for the police, for law enforcement, to be constantly investigating and prosecuting politicians for that. Instead, let's assume all politicians, more or less, are, you know, I'm reminded of Michel Foucault. He mm-hmm. said, um, the the struggle for power leads to, to two different outcomes politics or prison often both right so let's assume that basically they've got the goods on all the politicians the police do and it's just a matter of when they decide to use it And that that's a political calculation. In other words, let's assume that law enforcement is a political actor. Because it is. It has to be. In other words, they have to be funded. They have to have their policies affirmed. They have to have elected officials turn a blind eye to their activities. Because a lot of what the police do is quasi-legal. Right? They're a political actor. Just assume that. Mm-hmm. So what the Democrats try to do is say, don't politicize the police. Right? No. Let's just assume. It's a political... Because as soon as you have a struggle for socialism, politics of the police will be clear. Right. And there's right. no reason to say that that's not the case ordinarily under capitalism. Right. Okay. But here's, I mean, the Durham report makes it explicit that in this case, the FBI was acting politically and not by the standards of law enforcement. Okay. That's what one of the things that the, there will always be a fine line there though. But that's, that is, that is the, the 
premise of the weaponization of yes. government is yeah. that it is being used as a political weapon rather than as a a, a, a fair, impartial, a, a neutral uh, calling balls and strikes, playing by the rules of the law, uh, or you know, institution. Like the bureaucracy is supposed is supposed to be politically neutral and and have and rule bound, and especially the police are supposed to. Right. And the problem is, is that even if they were politically neutral as regards the parties, they still have a self-interest that makes them a political actor. Right. But I don't like I, I understand that you're correct. OK, but uh, my feeling is that as a, a, a movement that's trying to emerge, we should insist upon the yes. system playing by the rules of its own but you know what ideology. the point the point of insisting upon that is so the old socialist party of america but also the old SPDA in germany in in like Wilhelma in germany or in france in the dreyfus affair era of france right one of the things that the socialist party did was run on anti-corruption now unfortunately they also had contemporary rivals in that and like the progressives also ran on anti-corruption but the socialists made a claim, which is that they could be relied upon to be the anti-corruption party because of their distance from capitalist civil society. Mm. That they were not enmeshed in capitalist civil society and how it was embedded in politics. Right? So they didn't just say corruption. They said, Corruption is inevitable under capitalism. We're against capitalism, and therefore we're against corruption. So it was a sort of a demagogic thing, meaning that they were certainly insisting on the fair application of law, but they were also saying you're not going to really get that under capitalism. Not. So they were saying two things. They were saying we are for upholding the bourgeois values of impartial legality, all equal before the law, and no arbitrary exercise of power. But we also understand, and not just through corruption, but also there's something in the nature of capitalism itself that necessitates that politics betray constitutional norms, fair, you know, impartial law and justice so can we do that or in the meantime do we turn a blind eye like do we say oh well but we want these progressive policies so we'll ignore right mm -hmm. or are we going to actually say we reject we reject the state we reject the capitalist politicians we might like say that a capitalist politician is making a kind of a valid argument against the state or against an opposing party, but we would also show right, the limitations of that. In other words, we wouldn't just say, oh, well, it's self-interested, right? which is what they mm -hmm. tried to do with the Twitter file. We would rather say it might be self-interested, it might not be, because, you know, lo and behold, people might wake up and have a, a moment where they're like, I'm going to stand on principle today. You know, some elected politician might say, you know, I want my legacy to be, you know, I might get unelected. I might, you know, 
it's trouble. They might send me to jail for doing this, but I'm going to stand on principle. Then the point of the socialists would be to say, that's a noble effort, ultimately futile in capitalism, because capitalism has to violate these laws in order to work, in order to function. Right. And not because the law is bullshit. Not to adopt a cynical attitude towards the law or towards, you know, constitutionality or these kinds of things. Not to say, oh, well, look at how rotten it is, even from the very beginning, you know, constitution of property owners, uh, slaveholders. Mm. No, 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 right? But to say in capitalism, specifically, what needs to get done means violating civil rights. Yep. Okay. So when I try to move people to be concerned about the what I'm looking at as the death of the First Amendment, you know, uh, the, the 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 dissolution of the Bill of Rights and, and certainly the death of the First Amendment. Um, what I often encounter is a version of what you just said, but it, it is a cynical disavowal. It's like, well, we've never had free speech. No, you know, there's always been a bias uh, in the system. The corporations have controlled what we've seen and heard all along. Why is this any different? Um, and then you don't want even... it to officially, you don't want people to say, like, you don't want it to be accepted. In other words, yes, the First Amendment is violated all the time. But you don't want it to be the case that ordinary people no longer believe in the First Amendment. Right. I, we, we, don't, we want to always be struggling to uphold it, not uh, simply accept its disappearance. And, yes. and, um, and also when it comes to, um, the people will talk about Chomsky's uh, propaganda model from the manu- uh, from manufacturing consent, and and I'll say, well, and what I what I think people fail to recognize is that he was pointing the point to, of his argument. Yeah, right. His point, point of his argument was, right. was that corporations, in effect, uh, systematically uh, for institutional reasons, end up producing propaganda and censoring dissident voices uh, without there needing to be state intervention. But that didn't mean that there wasn't still, and even Chomsky would have said at the time, a relatively more freedom in the United States under the First Amendment for alternative voices to be heard and for new movements to pop up without, because there was no direct state censorship than there would be now when there is direct state censorship and you know uh, uh, so like but the, the whole point is well, we really use our right ra- there's this danger today of using a radical critique to disavow the obvious to this like so oh you know we're all the real the real chink in the armor is what? right so when did chomsky publish manufacturing consent 1988 okay so what has happened since hate yeah, speech. exactly it's speech it's right Hate crimes. That's that's the undoing of it all. I mean, because basically the left has decided, um, you know, it's all well and good, you know, capitalist manipulation of the media, yet yeah, we know all that. But we want people prosecuted for hate speech. Well, under the First Amendment, hate speech is still, even today, legal speech. You cannot be jailed for hate speech you if you 
You can be jailed with additional penalties for so, a crime. What happened not was, yes, but what happened recently that I heard, because the other thing is that we're living in an era of active prosecutors, both the local and the federal level, who are basically, you know, and this is coming out in the Alvin Bragg prosecution of Trump, novel legal theories of application of the law, new ways of applying the law. They're pushing the envelope. So at um, my brother's children's high school on Long Island. There was a so-called racial incident in which the predominantly white home team basketball game was, was playing against a predominantly black team from another district. And evidently, the students engaged in some kind of rallying for their own side against visiting predominantly black team where they were like whooping. But this was turned into, oh, they were barking at the black players like dogs. It is being investigated as a federal hate crime. Wow. Yes, this is happening. Right? Wow. So teenagers can't even be whatever, right? And it's actually being taken up by federal authorities, prosecutors. Yes, this is happening. Now, wait a minute. What, given that the speech itself is not criminal. Racial harassment. Oh, it's harassment. Yes. Harassment. Um, yeah. Making an, a, a hostile work environment. Is what they're not, not work environment. These are students. Right. So, so harassment usually. It's not clear. Yeah, it's not clear how this would apply, but basically it's being turned into rather than speech. Yeah, but it it doesn't it is not an act. Well, it doesn't you know by the by the standard rights. of uh, the, by the standard that the Supreme Court has historically taken in interpreting the First Amendment. A civil rights violation in the sense of um, you know denying access to people on racially discriminated. Oh, okay, so something like that. It was it was creating a hostile environment in the gymnasium and making yes, it in a public for space. them, yes. for them to continue to play, yes. and that and it was all right. So it's stretching it. Would, though. Wouldn't you have to? Wouldn't they have had to at least have left the game and stopped playing for that to be? Uh, and they might have. I don't. Know, I don't know the. I don't recall right now the exact details, but that might have happened. And so, but you know. The investigation is the punishment. Right, right. of course. Lawfare, lawfare, right? Were they losing? Was the black no, team losing? Think, I don't think it was anything like that. I think it was just whatever, right? And it, it might even have been, it might have had a racial dimension to it. it right. Sure, it did in some way, right? I'm right. sure. But. Right. Name? The state? Right. No. Right. Yeah. Oh. Give me yeah. a fucking break. And again, like, I'm now going to be called an apologist for racism. Fuck. You know, like, in other words, right. point being, if the state is going to police attitudes in the population. Right. Obviously, that can't, be, you know, that cannot be tolerated. To, but to look, You cannot allow the state to have that kind of power. 
But look, that's huh. where we're going, right? In other words, whether it's like LGBTQ stuff, women, right? Yeah, but and, and right? the thing is, it is actually where we're going because they're never going to control everyone's attitude. All that you're no, doing, no, you're all you're doing is handing the state a, a weapon to use yes. against dissidents and, yes. and other political organizing. It's not like they're going to be able to wipe out no, racist attitude. That's why, I mean, look, I'm in like, Against racism, of course. Of course. And racism yeah. and homophobia and transphobia. I think everyone should be treated decently. But I also know the police are not going to save me from a homophobic attack. They're not. No, but you, 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 they would be glad to use a homophobic attack against you to, you know, justify increasing police powers of surveillance and, and violence. Absolutely. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And so I just feel like, Again, but this is what people, they, they'd reduce it to the level of, but do you support this act being punished? And it's like, actually, it matters who is doing these things. In other words, like, you know, I kind of feel like if the, you don't want to give the state, the capitalist state, this power. And, of course, for them, they're like, well, then who would you give that power to? Well, right? you know what? How about this? You, the punishment will be slow and and social and, you know, based on interpersonal relationships and job prospects and uh, and lessons learned and life. And rather yeah, than, life. yeah, right. you know, life. you know, and then those again. kids will have to in 10 years look back and say to themselves, gee, I was part of a mob that was barking at uh, the other point is that players, if they were in fact doing, yeah, that, you know, and I'm not even sure that, that it should have gotten any media attention. Right. So then the, they certainly not, I mean, blacklisted, you know, for employment. Right. And the, the, the Democrats are into this stuff. They're into like canceling people, right. They're into saying 30 years ago, you said something on social media in when you were in high school and now you're going to be canceled, right? They love that, right? That is bad enough. And then of course the state, it just is one step further, but cancellation is bad enough. No, right? I mean, so look, I want to ask you about this, um, the kind of big picture politics, you know, um, because I feel like, uh, I mean, it, it might be but, helpful because yeah, okay, so like the DSA yeah. today would not allow someone to join the DSA as like a 30 year old who might have made a racial remark in high school that's on social media somewhere that's on some defunct MySpace page, right? They would be like, no, you can't join the DSA. And it's like, so you're are saying, they doing that kind of vetting really yeah. at the DSA? Well, things are being used against people there. That happens. People are dug well, up. What, 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 things what, are dug They'll let you join, take your money, and then if you try to oppose the leadership, then they'll then discover. Be <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In other words, it's you know this because the left is nothing but just a sort of amateur version of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I agree with that. But let me ask you a question about the left. So, mm -hmm. like you write in um, the Death of the Millennial Left that uh, avowed Marxists have failed to explain the past several transformations uh, transformations of capitalism, neither the Great Depression nor the crisis of the New Deal coalition leading to the new left of the 1960s and 70s, nor the crisis of the Fordist capital that led to neoliberalism have been adequately grasped. Instead, each change was met with panic and futile denunciation. 
as such, the left's response has actually been affirmative. By the time the left began to make to try to make sense of the changes, this was done apologetically, justifying and thus legitimizing in retrospect the change that had already happened. Such explanation may serve as a substitute for understanding, but reconciling the change and grasping the change, albeit with hindsight, let alone taking political opportunity for change, is not the same as adequately critiquing the change. What is needed, indeed required, is seeing how a crisis and change may point beyond itself. So what I want to ask you is how does a change that we're seeing occurring now, a change that may be, well, some people would claim it's a shift from neoliberalism to neo-feudalism. Hmm. How would that point beyond itself? I don't believe in the neo-feudal yeah. model, but but it 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 has an uh, affect, you know, it 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 speaks to this. I was thinking of- about that. For some reason I was thinking about what's the difference between buying a commodity and paying rent. There really isn't a difference, right? So this whole idea that it's no longer a commodity economy, but a rent-seeking economy, and especially with like so-called intangible goods, you know, like services or, you know, information, you know, intellectual property, you know, because I'm like, okay, is this like thing that I have, you know, like this box of cereal, what is that? Isn't that just intellectual property? Isn't that just a recipe? And isn't it just the brand name? Uh, I mean, it's a commodity, right. but I mean, it's a physical, useful thing that you've purchased. But, but you the know, point- the, box, the box for the cereal costs more to manufacture than the cereal that I'm going to eat for my nutritional needs. You know that, right? Is that always the case? Really? Yeah, the packaging yeah. is more expensive than the food. <laughs> right? Well, and I so what am I paying that. for? You know, am I paying for the brand name? Or am I paying for the stuff I need to eat? Right. My my it's answer is that rent collection from agribusness. In other words, isn't that yeah, absolutely. But the but the thing is rent seeking is already incorporated into capitalist right. commodity production. Right. So it, I, I don't think the fact that there's rent seeking going on today and a massive amount of financialization means that we're returning to feudalism. No. But what they this is pointing to is not a economic change. What it is pointing to is a political and social change. The feeling, the law of loss of liberty and the feeling of the encroachment of an authoritarian state um, and the feeling that there's less, that you're more controlled today. That's what the reference to neo-feudalism is all about, I think. I I mean, it's, it's it's combined and that's what's problematic about it, right? Is that it's actually combining two different things into one thing. Mm-hmm. Which is political unaccountability and, you know, um, a kind of corporate state fusion kind of, you know, unassailable power with, you know, well, we used to have the power of actually making things and now we no longer actually make things. And so we've lost that power. And it's kind of like, well, no, you know, we people- do make in the United States, we make a tremendous amount still. Sure. A lot of that manufacture is automated. Well, as we're, we're, we, we meaning the working class, not we in terms of the United States, because the United States, whatever, whatever the United States. Right. Okay. States well, but, okay. Some corporations and but some. The, but air all air those service process. workers and all those different kinds of workers who aren't right. directly making the cereal, but maybe making the boxes or. Or, or helping people delivering it or bringing or helping people find it on the shelf. They still matter as 
keeping this system going. They're still a part of the economy. What if they don't, though? What if they're servicing the machines, as Mark says? Well, they are, but they are, the machines need servicing. It's not like... Um, yeah, well, I know. Yeah. But, I'm not, you know, and that still like, gives them political power. That still means that they are the potential force for political change, if, if the, even if they're servicing the machines. Yeah, not um, because they can, like, block the machines, though. Like, we have to be, like, the political power of the working class. It's kind of a funny thing, because I would say within capitalism, the working class is pretty much reduced to a kind of animalistic existence and a kind of like appendage to the machine, all the things that Marx says. Yeah. I guess you know, I'm being very kind of eco- econo- economistic. In I wanted to say something about that because you guys just did your, what causes a recession. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you and Ashley were talking about this and I kind of feel like some basic things are being left out associated with people who I otherwise would not trust with teaching kids Marx, David Harvey. Right. And accumulation, capital accumulation, volume two of dust capital and the sphere of circulation, volume three, which is where our value is realized after all. Mm. Right. But volume one, how is value produced? Volume two, how is it accumulated? And volume three, how is it realized? Accumulation crises. Right. Let's not forget that the crisis of capitalism is a value crisis because it's a crisis of accumulation. That is really, really, really important because again, That's, but isn't that sweezy? I mean, I mean, I know that the, he has a whole book on uh, accumulation, but the crisis uh, actually starts at per, at the ground level within production. It doesn't. It's not because we have too much stuff. It's a disparity um, between accumulated value and production. It's. Um, explain a little I've bit written about this. More. But yeah. people have to wait for volume two of my book. Yeah, right, right, right. More theoretical writings, which you know, hopefully this year, not too long. But um, where it's really about, are we appro- How are we appropriating the social product? And the social product, like let's say machines are making everything, it's still social product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so how how is society appropriating its own product, its own production? And that's where there's a disparity, right? And that's where what's being produced at the level of value is um, labor, but there's a disparity between them and the material goods, right? There's a disparity between exchange value and use value. So there isn't this kind of happy dialectic in which social value is worked out between what people use and how they exchange these useful things, that those things are being driven apart and that an accumulation crisis is a demonstration of the disparity between what's produced and how society appropriates that production. And that's why it's all bubbles in which value disappears, but then is reconstituted. Like, you know, like fictitious value is revealed and then real value is supposedly reconstituted. Right. But the point is not like real value or something. Right. The point is that we don't need this way of measuring social wealth anymore. And therefore we don't need to be dominated by the needs of accumulation. Right. And I feel like you guys are getting into underconsumption theory and this kind of thing. And I kind of feel like, well, we're critiquing underconsumption. You were, yeah, you were getting into that in terms of like, are there, you know, like a market crisis, 
And the whole point right. of Marx is that it's a market crisis. Right, exactly. Crisis. Which is why we're critiquing Sweezy uh, and why we're, 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 we were critiquing specifically this mm-hmm. uh, video by Second Thought, who was trying to reduce Well, totally, yeah. No, and I agreed with that. Because I was, I was a little bit flabbergasted. If I was like, oh, oh really? You know, this like, guy's reaching 1.5 million. That's why he's reaching you know? 1.5 million. That's because people can understand. That. Right. And it's like, no, there's a deeper problem here. And I'll just say one last thing on that, on that front, which is Malthus. Mm-hmm. Malthus was right. Oh, about overpopulation. Mm-hmm. Another word, in other words, an accumulation crisis in the form of accumulated human beings. Mm-hmm. A crisis of overproduction means overproduction of labor, overproduction of human beings. So Marx's point is not that Malthus is wrong. Malthus is right, but he doesn't know why he's right. Right. So Malthus thinks technology and population are always the sink and that this has been true forever. Right. And Marx is saying, no, this is something specific to the industrial era of capitalism. Right. right. Malthus is correct. He's right. Yeah, but right, right. He doesn't know why he's right. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, and, but, but the point of you socialism guys are turning is... turning it into, oh, well, it's humans as mouths to feed versus hands to build things. And it's like, we don't need so many hands to build things. We don't. That's the whole point. In other words, like, this society doesn't need this number of people. It doesn't mean that there are too many people. It does not mean that. But it does mean as long as we are in this value system, bourgeois society, working for a living, the work ethic, right, that there's going to be a problem. You know, listen, Ashley and I are both breeders okay so we want to justify no, I all know you're not I know, I know not about that but i'm just, I'm just saying that you don't have to like it's kind of like there are different levels right so i would right. say that when aoc says it's irresponsible to have children look at the environment under capitalism she might be right she might be right about but, that under capitalism right so the danger for me is you can't argue against these things because then it's going to be like this or that capitalism. Like, do we like high consumption capitalism or do we like austerity capitalism? And it's kind of like, actually, we don't want either of those. We don't want like, you know, high consumption capitalism. Like, what was the other thing? Can every, can 8 billion people all have 4K flat screen TVs? They probably right. can. And that's probably not a problem at all. Right. right. But, you know, it's sort of like once you're in that domain of like, do you support everyone having a car and having a 4K TV or not? You've kind of lost the whole plot, you know? No, I totally agree with you. I, I, and yeah, but it, so when you take on these questions or critiques of what you're saying, you often I- inadvertently take up the framing of yeah. with it. And, yeah. and what I wanted to say to that was, look, we can create a world that isn't reducible to 4K TV. We can imagine. Absolutely. We can have a qualitative change in technology where you right. don't need 4K TV. We, we can imagine a way in yeah. which we could communicate and be entertained that would be far superior to a 4K TV. You know? And they and, might find some way of, in capitalism, plugging into our brain so that we don't have to make these 
piece of plastic. Oh, I fucking hope not. Not anytime soon. Because well, as soon as they do that, some nonprofit dweeb is going to be though. like editing my thoughts. No, you know? Check, check it out, Doug. We're gonna we're more likely to get that than we are to get socialism at this point, especially if the left continues to do what it's doing, which is be abject, craven slaves, bootlickers of the Democrats. Right. <laughs> right. Let me ask you, know? you that. Let me just repeat the question I asked the very last part okay. of it, which is how does the change that is occurring now, a change that we might say as a shift from the old neoliberalism to a more, uh, let, let's just call it the bureaucratic control society or something like that. Not neo-feudalism, but leave the economic claims out of it. How does that point to an opportunity for the left that we're missing? How, uh, so I was just, we were just teaching in Platypus in the reading group, Friedrich Pollock's Capitalism, Its Possibilities and Limitations, the Notorious, mm-hmm. right? And basically what he was saying is, he wasn't saying you know, the market doesn't exist anymore or the word's not capitalism. He was saying, let's, let's for a second consider, what if, right, everything is now bureaucratically managed and controlled by the state, right? Um, and that basically now it's, he says, democratic state capitalism and totalitarian state capitalism. He basically says totalitarian state capitalism, it's very optimistic, actually, Pollock. He's like, totalitarian state capitalism basically is a crisis regime that can't last. And so really what we're looking at is the possibilities and limitations of democratic state capitalism. So like the New Deal. Yeah. And he was saying the Soviet Union he's leaving it out because it would raise other questions about politics. And you get any of the Nazi Germany, totalitarian state capitalism or FDR, New Deal, democratic state capitalism. So what he said is basically, well, in democratic state capitalism, the state still has to appeal to the population. Still has to justify itself to whatever minimal extent. Mm. Right? So the realm, that's the realm. And so what he said was that the contradiction of capitalism will manifest there because it's the purpose of production. Because, you know, people could say, you know, we need to accumulate capital and that might be at the expense of wages, but we do need to accumulate capital. In other words, like you could make a democratic argument and people could say, mm-hmm. we're willing to sacrifice our standard of living for political goals. Right. The question now is, what are the political goals? And what we're being sold on is like green technology and, you know, we're being sold these things, which they may or may not come to pass. Right. Um, And if you think that the politicians care, they don't. Right. They're sort of testing the waters on what's going to get the vote. And the, the youth vote and what's the trend. You know, and it's just like a corporation is going to present itself as green. You know, I see all these TV commercials where the fossil fuel companies are like, if you want to know who the greenest company is, it's BP. We're the greenest. Right. And they may very well be. Right. But why do they need to say it? Right. Because it's marketing. Right. And it's ideology. And it's whatever. And so they're going to go with whatever is ideologically salient and whatever. And you can be sure this, the very same politicians, if it made sense for them to promote like Islamic fundamentalism to get votes, they would do it. They, you know, so we can just assume they do not care. 
you know, or if they do care, they believe their own bullshit. It's only because they've talked themselves into the latest advertising campaign that they sell. They're good salesmen. They might believe it. Right? So, but the people, what do the people want? Oh, and what is the arena? Like, what are we choosing here? What is being put in the realm of choice and what's not in the realm of choice? You know, what's outside the realm of choice? Um, you know, so like, you know, I know that you've been very exercised about the Ukraine war. Mm-hmm. And the Ukraine war is obviously like miserable and it might even be risky. I don't think that it's particularly apocalyptic. I don't. Um, I think that Putin's a lot of bluster, really. And I think that it's more like warfare and capitalism and warfare and capitalism the way the United States has always done it, which is statistical which is that they've like put, put out, they plotted out a statistical chart about like, if we spend this amount of money and expend this much ammunition and after so many months or years, we prevail, right? It's like what they did in World War II, what they tried to do in Korea and Vietnam didn't work out too well in those two cases. Worked in World War II pretty much. And they're just doing that, you know, it's like a statistical war of attrition in which they're, you know, doing what they're doing and you know, like pruning back the Russian state so that it doesn't like invade its neighbors and whatever, you know, it, it's just, it's miserable. Right. The question is, can we vote on that? Yeah. Good question. No, we, no. we're not going to vote. Yeah. Well, we, right. you know what? We're about to see. We're about to see. A, right. Yeah. And, and, and the, here's the problem. And, and we, well, we're not we really talk. allowed to vote on it because after all, if you vote against this bureaucratic policy that just has to happen, the foreign policy establishment consensus, we just have to do this, that if you're against that, then you must be like in the pocket of a Russian oligarch. Right. Or, you know, a, a MAGA racist. And that Same is what difference, I guess, right, because the right, idea is right. that mega racism was the product of Russia manipulation. Which, anyway, but, but now we know it wasn't. Okay, that right. just been revealed that it absolutely. Like we know that Russia paid for Facebook ads that were meant to like create racial tensions. Whatever, God. But the but but um, uh, here's what I want to say about from both sides, by the way. So supposedly Russia paid for advertising appealed to both black people and white people. Oh, I know. I guess I know. I know. But that was not what we were told. (laughs) That is not a threat to national security that requires not only that the that, you know, we waste all this money on a Russiagate conspiracy investigation, but also the Department of Homeland Security declares declares all of the the national infrastructure around elections, which, by the way, is everything. That's everything. That's all of the telecommunications industry. Mm-hmm. That's that's every, all the roads. That's that's everything. It has all of it has to do with the election. Anything involved with casting a vote pretty much is everything. The water right. you, you can't cast a vote unless you're drinking water. Right, exactly. So right. you know, yeah, right. So they just declared control and at least jurisdiction over all of this, all everything in our in our national economy and and in everyday lives, including the newspapers we read. But or the isn't shows. the point of your existence to vote for the Democrats? Well. Not anymore. No. And I, and you know what? I never did. I never, ever met a Republican. <laughs> no, I know. What are you, but a fascist? I only, I've only voted for Democrats twice I, at, at the presidential level, and, and I regretted it both times um, terribly. Uh, this time more than ever. <laughs> but uh, 
because because he won. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I want to say this about Ukraine, okay, and the, the situation in Ukraine. Like, I grew up in the Cold War. I was born at t- towards the tail end of the Cold War. I grew up with it. I know it. And the thing about the Cold War, when combined with the nuclear threat, was that it was about an ideological difference in the world. It was about a different, two different kinds of future. It was about a kind of totalitarian a system of state control versus one in which the people were more free and democratic. Which That's side was which? Well, you know, let's not worry about that. No, the because point, the West Our won. side was the good side, okay? The West won, <laughs> and it might turn out that the West is more totalitarian than the East could have ever dreamed of. Well, that, that is absolutely true. But the point is that that ended in 1989. And you never had the chance to vote on the Cold War either. Right, that's true. Any justification for continued Armageddon-level conflict has gone away. We were promised that that is over. Like, I'm just playing the naive American. Well, you know what? So we were never allowed to vote on the Cold War, but guess what? The capitalist politicians still accused each other routinely of betraying the Cold War, of selling it. They did that nonstop. The 1960 election... 1964 election, but Nixon, right, and detente, and the overture to China, right? Right. And, you know, Carter, is he soft on the Soviets? Is he hard on the Soviets? Like, and then, like, Brzezinski, and then, like, Reagan, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, Reagan has got all this bluster, but actually he's going to undermine our position in the Cold War. And actually, the Carter's the Carter foreign policy is the better Cold War strategy. So right. they're always accusing each other of betraying the consensus. Because but then that, that ability to play that game was taken away from them in 1989-91 when the Soviet Union. War. Well, right, but they created the war on terror, right? Okay, they all right. The New World Order before that. Yeah, but the New World Order—that's Fukuyama. That's the end of history. That's. No more big ideological conflicts in the world. No more nuclear war. It's still meant, though, like confronting like the relics of the Cold War, the tin pot dictatorships in the third world. Okay, some cleanup, but no big ideological conflicts, right? That, no that big ideological not- conflicts, but still U.S. hegemony. Right, U.S. hegemony. Fine. Look, I'm just saying they are now asking all Americans to accept the threat of nuclear annihilation over what over no there's no big ideological conflict in the world there's no there's this but is even what bernie different. supports the ukraine policy uh, but bernie is no different than my my point is that they they are but asking bernie us back for, in the day back in the cold war day bernie was like do we really have to be this hostile towards the sandinistas and towards cuba is that really like in our national interest Right. In other words, he was not on the other side of the Cold War. He was just saying, is it really necessary? It might, have, might have also be counterproductive. Like, mm-hmm. maybe you want communist Cuba to be our friend. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. why not? If we could peel them away from the Soviet Union, why not? Right? And maybe we want the Soviet Union to be our friend. Maybe that's how you defeat communists. You make them our friends. Right. Well, it's it's pretty awful that now, without any ideological conflict in the world, without any serious 
comprehensible system of understanding world politics, we're being asked, and in, in the span of a couple that of years... That was a bad way of understanding world politics, but Cold War... I know it was. I, I know. I'm not justifying what was. I'm saying if you, today... I'm not saying, oh, yeah, I thought the Cold War was justified and let's smash No, 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 but you, you felt like it was more um, ideological, like, whereas now it's unclear what the point is. Right. There was... This is... We're being asked to accept that there are... are there's a, a world historic conflict between nations based on trans trade rights. Tra 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 trans 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 rights. Yeah, they fly the rainbow flag in Ukraine, not in Russia. Don't you know, Doug? You didn't hear? That is, you that, get, you know, we're arming Nazis in the Donbass. Don't That's give me okay. The Nazis are for LGBTQ. <laughs> They're <fun. laughs> They're just against the bad Russians. It's fine. All right. I'll tell you what. Listen, let's just. I, <laughs> this is the end of part one. In the second half, we'll go on from there where you, you, you troll me. <laughs> if you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>